Tonight, as I was preparing my talk, I reflected back to the last talk that I gave and how I felt before I gave it. And it was on mudita. And I was feeling such joy and exuberance at that time. And tonight's feeling was different, and yet it was also joyful. Tonight, um, I want to talk about the five aggregates of clinging. And so, in speaking of the five aggregates of clinging, it means that in the last few days, that's really what I've been paying attention to and reflecting upon. And in doing so, there has been a great joy. There's been a sense of really diving into the, the real crux of the Buddha's teachings and wanting to do so from the place of investigation, from the place of inquiry. And in doing that, there just comes great joy to look into our own experience to come to know the truth of the way things are. Just to say that the five aggregates of clinging are um, the material or physical form, that which we know of as our body, material elements in the world being made up of earth, air, water, and fire, the feeling tone of experience, whether when we contact experience, there's pleasantness, unpleasantness, or whether it's neutral. There is also perception, the organizing element of the mind that has memory, remembers, can identify. There's volitional formations in the mind. That which brings about physical, vocal, or mental activities. And there's also consciousness. That which knows. This knowing element of mind. Which, when we have any experiences through the sense doors, There's the knowing of these experiences. This is consciousness. So tonight, and over at least the next time I speak, and maybe beyond that, I'm not sure, it's kind of a process, I will be speaking about these five aggregates of clinging which make up a person, what we call our self. It's what we tend to identify with when we think of self. And it's all different aspects of experience, different categories of experience. And so I'd like to um, invite you to use these talks as a form of investigation and inquiry in your own heart and mind. Um, I'm going to be going slow with it so that it's not just an intellectual exercise, so that we actually look at these aggregates in our experience. And so that there's some chance that we can come to understand how when we identify 
with these aggregates, we suffer. I know we can hear about these five aggregates and think, you know, maybe we identify with ourselves as being a really passionate, emotional person. And then we hear about um, physical form, um, feeling tone, perception, volitional formations, consciousness. Think, what does that have to do with me? What has, what does that have to do with me as being this passionately alive person, um, with all kinds of feelings that experiences loss and love? And yet, when we really look at these categories of experience, we will find that all of what we keep identifying with in our lives is contained within these categories of experience. Tonight, also as a way of um, keeping this from being an intellectual exercise, at the end of the talk, I'm going to do a short guided meditation that will just help point towards these aggregates of clinging. So I'm veering a little bit tonight from our regular form. And tonight we may not get too uh, much in depth into these aggregates because I feel like there's kind of a stage that can be set to the understanding of these aggregates and to the understanding of how we get caught in suffering with identification with these aggregates. So I'd like to begin with the question, who am I? Who am I? And just looking right now into this question, who am I? It's an important question. It's a question that all throughout time people have asked themselves. It's been the center of a lot of philosophical debates, philosophical discussions. It's been a question that many great masters have used. a question that when we investigate, when we really apply attention, mindfulness, inquiry, the seeing of can free us from suffering, can release the heart. And it's really no surprise that this uh, question is so central to spiritual inquiry. Because as we sit here, there can be such a strong identification with I. I am sitting. I am hearing. I am thinking. It's not uncommon that this sense of I feels quite solid, feels like it's never changing, and is usually present. A common place of identification is that of the body. I am my body. 
I am my body sitting here. From the time that we're small children, we come in contact with this sense of I. And as small children, we may have asked this question, who am I? Children are wonderful in how they question existence, how they don't filter those questions and will come outright with questions that adults cannot answer. And I know as a child, there was this questioning of who am I? I remember at one point, and it's really a poignant memory, um, where I asked my mother what the world would be like without me in it. And then I didn't just ask the question. I remember, I remember where I stood in the house. I remember what I was looking at. I was standing behind the curtain and I was peering out the window. And then I tried to imagine the world without me. Because I already recognized there was this strong sense as if I was the center of the universe. And so I imagined myself not standing there. I imagined my family not having me in it. I imagined the world without me. Trying to see what it would be like not to be the center of the universe. And would the universe still survive? In our lives, as we grow up, as we get older, we nurture this sense of I, the sense of who we are, the stories of our life, what we will become. We have so many stories about our lives. You know, sometimes they're great stories, stories of the things we've done, as if that's who we are. Sometimes they're tragic stories, when we've uh, had really painful circumstances in our lives. And it's as if that's who we are. We tend to get locked into these views and ideas about who this personality is. And we can hold those views in ways that are painful, are limiting. You know, when we feel good about ourselves, we might really hold on to an identity of being a happy, cheerful, buoyant person. And yet, when things go wrong, we identify with ourselves in a way of being really judgmental, hard on ourselves, unworthy, a person who is no good. Often in our lives, we find that we try to perfect this sense of who we are. Or we try to protect, defend this I, this me, this mine, this view of oneself. And then, much to our distress, this is not very easy. We wrestle 
with habits of mind that keep coming about over and over again and that keep perpetuating the sense of who we are. We wrestle with conditions in our lives that are out of our control, that we can't um, have control over and keep us sending in, spinning off in turbulent ways because we can't get life to be the way we want it to. We can wrestle with our inability to really stay true to our hearts, where we get caught in patterns. And we can, as a result, feel quite unhappy about our lives. This is very aptly described by a man named Wei Wu Wei, who was a contemporary of Paul Reps and Alan Watts. And he's quite famous for having said, Why are you unhappy? Because 99.9% of everything you think and of everything you do is for yourself. And there isn't one. We get so locked into this idea of self, protecting the self, living our whole lives around the self. And then, here is way Wu Wei saying, there isn't one. And that's why we're so unhappy. It's a bit of a shift to go from our, our uh, self-improvement project or self-referential way of living to an idea that there isn't a self. And this statement actually needs more explanation or it's confusing, misleading, and will lead to more suffering. So we're probably all familiar with, at least on an intellectual level, the Buddhist teachings on anatta, or the impersonal or insubstantial nature of all experience. And this is often expressed as a lack of solid, unchanging entity of self. This um, solid, unchanging self, not being real. The Buddha, in his teachings on anatta, would not enter into philosophical philosophical discussions about whether there was a self or no self, because he said that just led to greater identification with views that were of the nature to obscure the mind. And that not leading to freedom. And instead, um, he pointed to that freedom comes through our own direct experience of the true nature of this mind and body. And so he pointed to ways of investigating our experience or breaking down the solidity of our conceptual framework that keeps us from seeing things as they are. So the Buddha didn't offer the teachings on the impersonal or insubstantial nature of our experience or teachings of not-self. He wasn't offering them in the way of physical debate. 
But he was challenging us to look into what we call I, what we call me, what we call mine. Often when we hear mention of the word anatta, or this impersonal or insubstantial nature of experience, we start trying to figure out how there can be teachings of not-self, how we can understand this. We start trying to figure it out in the conceptual mind, which will send us in a tailspin which will disturb or agitate the mind when we start trying to figure out these teachings. I've noticed in teaching retreats that uh, after a Dharma talk on anatta, the next day, if there's opportunity for questions, people are in such a flurry trying to figure this out. You know, and there can be just the trying to work it out conceptually, um, trying to desperately understand through the conceptual mind. Or there can be um, people who feel absolutely panicked, as if they suddenly have this realization of anatta, that they will poof, blow up into smoke. And so it becomes very threatening. But what I found in my own experience, the way that it was most helpful to look into teachings of not-self, was to hold it just as a possibility, just as a seed, just as a place of inquiry. The truth is that when we start looking into what we call self, we start looking into the places of identification, the places of separation that we experience. We're probably all very familiar with the pain of separation. You know, where you know it can be very gut-wrenching at times. We can feel so isolated from the rest of existence. Sometimes the separation is just this gnawing pain of things not being quite right. We might at times feel a longing to be one with the universe and instead feel trapped inside this body that is subject to sickness, old age, and death. But who is it that is so separate? Who is it that resides beneath the pain and the longing? Looking more closely at this pain, looking at this longing, as we look at the pain and the longing, it becomes great waves upon the ocean. Waves that arise, come into being, and release, cease to be. They arise out of conditions, they're known, 
And as conditions change, they cease, they relax, release. But our tendency in life is to identify with all these aspects of experience. We tend to identify the body, feelings, perceptions, actions. We identify with awareness. We take ownership of. There's a uh, wonderful story from Mullah Nasruddin, a Sufi mystic. And I think it expresses this tendency to want to take ownership with all aspects of experience. Nasruddin was walking past a well when he had the impulse to look into it. It was night, and as he peered into the deep water, he saw the moon's reflection there. I must save the moon, Nasruddin thought. Otherwise she will never wane, and the fasting month of Ramadan will never come to an end. He found a rope, he threw it in and called down, Hold on tight, keep bright, help is at hand. The rope caught on a rock inside the well, and Nasruddin heaved as hard as he could. Straining back, he suddenly felt the rope give as it came loose, and he was thrown on his back. As he lay there panting, he saw the moon riding in the sky above. Glad to be of service, said Nesrudin. Just as well I came along, wasn't it? Don't we like to own all of the good things that happen in life? But sometimes we shudder to own some of the more tragic painful things of life. As we sit, looking to our experience to see how it is that we try to own our experience, how we identify with our experience, how we create this person out of what is happening in our momentary experience. I remember uh, when I had the opportunity to sit for six months and to practice. And, you know, at first you see things arise, you know, there's some identification, passes away, um, and it, you know, it comes and goes, and then you start to see how the same stuff is coming and going, coming and going, and then it becomes you know, I just could see that there was these same stories I told myself over and over again. You know, if anger was prevalent, I became this really angry person that was a terrible, horrible person. You know, if I was jealous, I was terrible, horrible. You know, and sometimes I knew better than everyone else. You know, and then I was this great being, this, you know, almost enlightened being. But there was just these stories that repeated themselves over and over and would just stem from a momentary experience.
in coming to understand anatta or the insubstantial nature of experience, it is helpful to come to understand the truth of impermanence. The truth that whatever arises in this body, this mind, is impermanent in its nature. Whatever arises out of conditioned reality will one day cease to be. This helps us to break down this solid sense of I, the sense of who we think we are. When we can see that what arises in one moment is gone in the next moment, and there's new conditions. Conditions have changed. We look directly into this truth over and over again in our practice. When we're with the sensations of the breath, it arises and passes. Sensations in the body continually changing. Thoughts, what we struggle with one day, is gone the next day. Mind states, they're continually changing. We start to see how all these aspects of experience are arising and passing away. Narada Thera, in his teachings on Anatta, said, The so-called being is like a flash of lightning that is resolved into a succession of sparks that follow upon one another with such rapidity that the human retina cannot perceive them separately, nor can the uninstructed conceive of such succession of separate sparks. As the wheel of a cart rests on the ground at one point, so does the being live only for one thought moment. It's always in the present and is ever slipping into the irrevocable past. What shall we be what we shall become is determined by this present thought moment. What we keep calling I is changing in each moment. This rapid succession of changes of mind and body. As we sit, we know it becomes hard to say, I am this pain in my shoulder, this pain that's here one day, gone the next. I am this breath. I am these memories. I am these fantasies. One evening, on a full moon night, which maybe even tonight is a full moon night, (laughs) Uh, there was a a group of 60 bhikkhus gathered around the Buddha. And it said at the end of this discourse, he had, uh, they became enlightened. But it was a discourse where he was speaking on the five aggregates. And the Buddha said, bhikkhus, what do you think? Is material form permanent or impermanent? They responded, 
impermanent, Venerable Sir. Is what is impermanent suffering or happiness? They responded, suffering, Venerable Sir. Is what is impermanent suffering and subject to change fit to be regarded thus, this is mine, this I am, this is myself? They responded, no, Venerable Sir. Bhikkhus, what do you think? Is feeling, perception, formations, consciousness permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, Venerable Sir. Is what is impermanent suffering or happiness? Suffering, Venerable Sir. Is what is impermanent suffering and subject to change fit to be regarded thus this is mine, this I am, this is myself? No, Venerable Sir. In our experience, what is impermanent? What is subject to change? What is suffering? Not fit to be regarded as this is mine, this I am, this is myself. We have to look into our own experience to really know of this impermanence, to know how things are constantly changing, to see it for ourselves, to uproot the grasping, the clinging. Another way that the Buddha helps us to understand anatta, or the insubstantial, impersonal nature of experience, is to look and to see in our experience how Yes, things are subject to change, and they are also ungovernable, that we can't control the way things are unfolding. Looking into our own experience, we have no control over this body that we so often identify with. If we did have control, Would we be sick? Would we age? Would we die? We can't stop this from happening. We can't govern or have control over this body. Our meditation often shows us how ungovernable experience is. You know, we can't sit down at the beginning of a sitting and say, okay, I'm not going to think. It doesn't happen that way. It doesn't work. We can't control it in that way. There's quite a wonderful story in the suttas about a wanderer named... Suchuka, 
Pali pronunciations always stump me a little bit. Suchuka <laughs> um, had heard from uh, one of the first five disciples of the Buddha uh, that the Buddha's teachings were form, feeling, perceptional, volitional formations, and consciousness were, were all impermanent and not self. And Suchuka decided to go to visit the Buddha and to set him straight uh, because he believed in a self. It was said that he didn't know much of the Buddha's teachings and that he had no practical understanding of the Dhamma. And he had a very poor opinion of it. And he felt that he was very much above it. So he organized for a group of people to go and attend a debate in which he boasted that he would whirl the Blessed One round in the matter of doctrines, just like a powerful man catching hold of a kid by his fleece, which would whirl it round and round. And so he went to challenge the Buddha. His challenge didn't quite go as he anticipated. The Buddha had Sutrika admit that he believed that there was material form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness, and they were self. And then he backed him into a corner when he said, "Um, you said form is myself. Can you exercise control over that self? Saying, let the self of mine be thus. Let the self be not thus. And at first, the wanderer would not answer. And it was only when the Buddha asked for the third time, and the Buddha warned him in asking him for the third time, because apparently if a Buddha asks you a question three times and you fail to answer, your head will split into seven pieces. And so the Buddha gave him a warning in asking him, if, um, if he could exercise control over this self. And as the Buddha was asking it, apparently uh, the, both the Buddha and the wanderer could see this celestial org that was hovering over the wanderer's head and was ready to split open his head if he failed to answer the question. So there was the wanderer backed into this corner. And so he had to answer that he had no control. He had no control over material form, feelings, perceptions, volitional formations, and consciousness. I think he was quite humbled. And then he was asked whether these forms were impermanent or permanent, and whether what is impermanent is suffering and subject to change, and if this is proper to be regarded as this is mine, this I am, and this is myself. And of course, he had to respond, No, Lord. The Buddha then went on to explain to him how he could undertake meditation practice that would help him to become an arahant, or one who had true understanding of the physical and mental mental aggregates, and this true understanding being that they are not mine, not I, not myself. 
So in our practice, noticing how we can't govern, we can't control these different appearances of body and mind. Looking into our own experience to recognize that they are ungovernable. planned on going further tonight, but I want for us to take the time to really look into our own experience together. So, um, yeah, so, so finding a comfortable posture. As we sit, establishing mindfulness through the experience of sitting. The experience of the body sitting. Sensations of touch, hardness, softness. Having a sense of the body posture Areas of tightness, tension. As we turn our attention to this body, these sensations that are known are material elements. Physical form. This is matter. Components of the physical realm, earth, air, water, fire. We know them directly through the experience of this body. In awareness of these sensations we might notice that some of them are pleasant. Some of them are unpleasant. Some of them are neither pleasant or unpleasant. This is the feeling tone of experience.
So when we're aware of the qualities of the sensations, we're aware of the physical element. And when we're aware of the pleasantness or unpleasantness, we're aware of the feeling tone, Vedana, of experience. And then letting the attention shift to the experience of breathing. As we shift the attention, this is a volitional formation. It's an intention. Intention to turn to another aspect of experience. Breathing in, breathing out. Perception, allowing us to know breath, allowing us to know in, out. the ability to organize, to remember, to identify. Our practice is a sharpening of perception. When perception is vague, things are not seen clearly. We tend to identify, create stories, proliferations. As we practice, we sharpen perception. to know experience in its simplicity without the great proliferations of mind. As we breathe in, as we breathe out, it is consciousness that knows. Consciousness knows experience through any of the sense doors. As we sit and open to hearing, the sound, rising, being known, disappearing. It 
It is consciousness that knows. And we don't create this consciousness. It arises through contact. In the moment of hearing, we know hearing, touching. As we sit, paying attention to these five aggregates the material, the feeling tone, perception, volitional formations or intentions, unconsciousness. Noticing how whatever is arising in our experience disappears. Sensations that were pleasant might turn to unpleasant, might disappear. Thoughts that arise disappear. Staying steady in the knowing of experience. If a memory arises, noticing that we had no control, it simply popped up. Noticing we don't have only pleasant experience. From the Buddha. Thus 
bhikkhus, any body whatsoever, past, future, or present, internal or external, blatant or subtle, common or sublime, far or near, every body is to be seen as it actually is, with right discernment, as this is not mine, this is not myself, this is not what I am. Any feeling, any perception, any mental processes, any consciousness, whatsoever, past, future, or present, internal or external, blatant or subtle, common or sublime, far or near, is to be seen as it actually is with right discernment as this is not mine, this is not myself, this is not what I am. May all beings come to know and understand the causes of suffering and to realize the release of the heart. of sharing and aspiration. Who the arises from my practice? May my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the Son and the
This talk was given by Maya Shin Kelly at the Forest Refuge on February 5, 2004. It is an offering of the 